on. out there happy easter one and all joe cardinal and we have a special guest that i'm going to let joe introduce since joe knows this gentleman but first and foremost happy easter everybody and joe how you been doing how's that hair uh still every day it's it's like it's like you know the journey of a thousand steps every day it's another another you look so different now oh yeah well actually i should probably get my video going there we go so you want to have a big review. It's like an Easter surprise. You don't want to like let it out of the gate right away. You know, you want to build up. So I hope everybody, this is added to their holiday cheer by uh, getting the big reveal. So, well, you know, people come from worldwide. I mean, and, and from what I'm hearing, if the truth, if there is truth about the aliens, they may be coming from other planetary systems just to catch a weekly glimpse of you. I don't doubt that at all. It would make sense that, yeah, I would definitely, uh, definitely, there's been moments of probing for sure, but I don't know if that's been involved with alien. I can't confirm if that oh, was let's, alien. Let's keep this clean with your probing stuff. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, why don't you introduce this sensational martial artist? I've never had the pleasure of meeting him myself, so I'm going to let you do the honors. Yeah, and it's kind of funny that you two guys have never run into each other because, you know, I was just looking over... Uh, Rick's resume on his website and it's like gosh I mean so many of the same people and gyms uh, you guys have crossed you know run into similar circles for for so many years so it's kind of cool to have you guys uh, together uh, for the first time uh, but yeah Rick Solo um, welcome to the show he's kind of a you know a legend here in the Chicago area as far as a Muay Thai trainer kind of one of the premier ones if not in the, just the Chicagoland area probably in the Midwest. He's been involved in martial arts for decades now. Uh, his focus for the last few decades has been in Muay Thai, and he's done a lot to promote that art. Um, he has his own gym here and has had, uh, I was just looking at it, uh, he's been to Thailand dozens of times, you know, and trained with all kinds of fighters, has championship fighters of all different types. Um, actually, one of the guys that you both have trained um, in common is Shoni Carter. I saw that that on Rick's site, that both of you guys have trained Shoni at various times in your, uh, you know, teaching career. So that's cool. But hey, Rick, why don't you say hello and kind of tell us your story? How did you get involved in the martial arts? Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm honored and it's a privilege. Um, I've probably been to Thailand three dozen times, by the way. Wow. Maybe more. So, yeah, dozens. Um, you know, you do all kind of things your whole life, and a lot of times it doesn't stick. So I did, uh, you know, various martial arts, 
I wrestled in high school, and uh, I'm a pretty horrible wrestler, by the way. And uh, it never stuck. And what I like to think of as my modern career, early 80s, I joined a gym, and uh, humorously enough, like the first day I could attend, they had a Larry Hartzell seminar running with the catch wrestling theme. And uh, I was I was completely captivated. I thought it was the coolest thing I ever saw in my life. It was great. And one thing led to another. And back then, not to prattle on, but that that genre of martial arts, whatever you want to call Larry's organization, JKD, part of the Filipino martial arts, catch wrestling, but it was tied to all this other stuff, uh, a lot of Filipino stuff. And uh, one of the things it was tied to was Muay Thai. And uh, I was doing a lot of boxing back then. And uh, I met Sir Chai Sir Sud, generally credited as the man who brought uh, Muay Thai to America. Although there'd certainly be others, uh, but he was he was the first. And uh, you know, one one thing leads to another, and here I am on your podcast. What can I tell you? <laughs> well, that's great. It's great to have you here. And you know, um, so we have do have a couple of things in common. You said you've been to Thailand probably at least three dozen times. That's more times than Joe has seen a barber. So you have the advantage there. And I got to meet Larry Hartzell on a couple of occasions and talk to him on the phone and this and that. And uh, he was, this was sadly near the, near the end of his life, unfortunately. Uh, but boy, he was just a nice guy. You know, we had dinner together Um uh, with uh, another one of our his and my mutual students, uh, Marcus Charles, which was just uh, yeah, I, I uh, Larry was one of the you know just one of the good guys. It's a, it's a shame he he's gone. But again, when you start dropping names, Joe's right. Our paths have crossed so many times, you and I, and it's it's just strange that we've never had a chance to meet. But I guess now in this. 21st century with the COVID, everything is, um, you know, via, you know, distance or Zooms or whatever. I guess it's uh, virtual, as they call it. Yeah, virtual meetings. I guess it's just fitting that we meet our first time virtually. So thank you for being yeah. here. Yeah, it's a 20, 2021 <laughs> type of story. Um, I, never, I never met Marcus Charles, but I've spoken to him many, many times. Uh, I've messaged him many, many times. Uh, he took the tie test, and uh, I, I, I talked to him a lot after that. So I'm like uh, early Larry. So I agree with you. Larry was like the greatest guy, and uh, I think not fully credited for how technical he was, for how knowledgeable he was. You know, he'd been training with Dan and Asano forever. So if we're going to tell stories, the stories I heard – was that Dan and Asano basically taught all of uh, Ed Parker's Kempo classes. And then uh, Bruce showed up. For a while, Dan was teaching both classes. And then Dan just kind of switched to uh, Bruce's classes. And Larry was there. So it was a different world back then. It's You know, you've been around forever. Modern people really can't understand that. But back then, walking into a school and challenging people to fight was a 
perfectly acceptable thing. Nobody really thought anything of it. So Larry was there, uh, you know, if people wanted to come in and, and see how real people were. And he'd been training with uh, Dan forever. And uh, I was discussing this with uh, Joe. Um, sorry, because I don't want to screw this up. Uh, Mike Figarelli, Dean Lisi, <clears throat> John Failing from Madison, and myself, we were always traveling around, going to all Larry's seminars, bringing him in. And uh, he decided he was going to have an organization. So he made us all honorary full instructors. And he said, well, when I ha I'm going to have tests, I'm going to have ranks, I'm going to have web websites. So we actually all passed the test. I think we passed it at uh, Dean's school in uh, Dubuque, Iowa. He goes, okay, you're all, you're all full instructors, but I don't have certificates yet, and I don't have my website. And uh, in the intervening time period, Larry met his wife, and uh, things started going in a different direction. Uh, not really a direction I wanted to go, but, you know, more power to him. And uh, I was getting far more serious about my Muay Thai. Well, I was always serious, but it was consuming more of my time. And uh, I kind of separated out from Larry's organization. But, uh, you know, Larry was a great guy. Larry had great stuff. And, uh, you know, I wish that was still around today more in terms of popularity. Yeah, I don't well, know if anybody's teaching that anymore, specifically from his lineage. I don't know. Maybe they're doing it. Maybe Eric Paulson. I don't even know. I don't think they're from. I don't know. I shouldn't even say. I don't know. I know they know each other. But getting back to like Larry now so I met Larry as I said near the end of his life but he had told me in the relatively in the beginning of his Bruce Lee career he had done some boxing and some judo so this is long before he was introduced to his uh his style of catch um but he was like the the, the bodyguard the, the yeah. You had to go through him at the gym. And, you know, especially in that era, in the early 60s, uh, he was big for, you know, physically big for that, that time frame. Um, you know, so, yeah, he was, he was that guy. And, uh, you know, yeah, we, used to, we, we just had – I mean, I miss him. And the one thing that bothers me is he wanted me to make him a knee bar video. And I just – you know, it was, it was problematic for me to get – anybody to my gym what are what my schedules to film this and blah 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 and in the, in the interim he passed away it was short i mean it was it wasn't like this was months and months and months this was like a, a matter of a few i don't know five six weeks since i since he requested the video so that shows you that even till the the very end of his life he was still on a quest to to learn to discover to see things how do you not like that? I mean, that's just awesome. Well, it's like we went to the same high school, but we went in, in different uh, time periods. Hmm. Eric Paulson would definitely be up there. I don't think, I don't think he's, uh, I think he's doing his own thing and he's more of an MMA teacher. There's still a Larry Hartzell grappling association floating around because um, I'm Facebook friends with people who are members of it. 
But as you well know, we live in a jujitsu world today. Yeah, it's yeah. Larry, uh, Larry never like really to me uh, claimed to be like a catch wrestler per se. Uh, he he did some shooto. He was a cross trained guy uh, for yeah, sure. Judo. More yeah. judo. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And you know you throw things. Yeah, in. Yuri, Yuri, Yuri Nakamura. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So and that has its own history to it. Uh, but yeah. A- anyway, the thing the thing for me is I don't. I mean I've I've trained in the past. I've taught uh, at at certain JKD schools or uh, clubs, but um, I'm not a part of any organization. I, I pretty much have been my own guy all these years. But I'll tell you again, Larry. Uh, you know, fan, he just was just a nice guy. And, and it was weird because when I had, when we had gone out for dinner, I had a pretty bad injury at the time. So I was limping really bad and Larry was all beat up and he was limping really bad. And we looked like just full of like goons. We were at this restaurant, like we were both like, well, Larry had lost a lot of weight, but we were still well over 200 pounds. Both of us limping and shit. We looked like we, uh, you know, were, Ex football players or something, and just but he's just a kind man, just really an honor to be around the guy. Larry's, uh, Larry's, you know, JKD then was more uh, open from what I see, and Larry's JKD from what I saw, from what I remember, a lot more boxing. Other people's JKD had more Wing Chun. Larry had way more, way more boxing, and it would be more permissible to have JKD that had a lot more boxing in it. So that was kind of how uh, I related to that system. Uh, I don't know how to put it. I did, I did too much Muay Thai. For the life of me, I couldn't do those kicks. The way they kicked, the whole, ment- whole mentality is so different. If you're, if you're you know, doing all this Muay Thai, you just emotionally, you just can't, you just can't kick like that. So, uh, I learned a lot from Larry and it was a great time and he had good stuff, but, uh, I had, a, I had a, I had a JKD, the JKD. <laughs> I can't believe that stuff's not around. I can't believe the Filipino martial arts are so small now. That was like the most popular stuff when I joined. Well, it's it's funny you you bring up this you you could you couldn't do their kicks because you were so you know into the in the Muay Thai and I I had it's I had almost the same kind of epiphany not not with not relating to the kicking but some of the schools would teach I don't know where they got this what style it was from but like let's call them joint locks for the lack of a better term I I don't know what sure. I'm just like no this isn't go, <laughs> this isn't going to happen uh, this is not this is no, never. And um, so, so like you, that wasn't the path you wanted to take. Well, I couldn't have done that stuff. It just wasn't for me, but um, none of the, uh, well, I think that, that the Marcus Charles dabbled uh, or I shouldn't say dabbled, but he did um, some tie boxing with, I don't know if he did it on his own, but I think he did go to some master chai um, seminars or what have you. Tim, Tim Tokars. Tim Tokars. Oh, okay. Tim Tokars okay. is instructor. But for me, um, none of the guys that I worked with had any sort of deep, not, I mean, I knew more than they did. 
as far as the tie goes or the, you know, that kind of stuff, certainly the boxing, I knew more. I, I don't, I wasn't with anyone, I think that did any, any semblance of boxing, but um, that would have been nice with Larry, uh, you know, to, to continue on with the boxing frame as opposed to going into like, you know, the more obscure martial arts, whatever they may be that some of the uh, JKD schools do. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to tell two stories because it's kind of a storytelling show, right? Yeah. So uh, Dan and Asano and his lovely wife, Paula, who's from Chicago. I actually trained with her before she met Dan and uh, Paula has a lot of controversy, but you know, Paula, Paula did right by Dan and commercially got his life together. And uh, Paula was always a very, very serious student from the first day she joined. Not commenting on other stuff, not my pay grade, but, you know, Paula was, was hardcore from day one. So getting sidetracked now and forgetting what I'm talking about. But uh, Bruce's group, I think, was very hardcore. Because you had, uh, you know, you know, Dan, who's like a professor. You had Larry, who, you know, straight up, Larry could fight. You had uh, Richard Bustillo. Uh, there's another guy. Like, that guy could fight. And you had all these other people who were very good. And Larry has always told me, like, if you were good, they had a place for you in, in um, Bruce's gym. And uh, a million years ago, when dinosaurs rolled the earth, I went to a Benny Urquita seminar. And really, you guys got to ask me about that one. Yeah. And, uh, well, Benny, Benny, basically, at a certain point, Benny beat the living crap out of me and everybody else in the seminar. But uh, he's very open. And he was talking to me. And, uh, you know, his brother fought Bill Wallace. And I was talking to him about that fight. And he goes, yeah. My brother used to work out with Bruce Lee. And I'm like, really? He goes, yeah. You know, back then, and this is, you know, Blink, uh, Benny Urquita's talking. Back then, things were different. He just brought me, you know, I don't know. I'm going to class. I'm just going to go work out. And because uh, I was small, I sparred the guy teaching the class, and he was small. I didn't even know who he was. Then afterwards, my brother goes, that's Cato. And I'm well, like, really? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so Benny Urquidez, when he was young, sparred Bruce Lee. Wow, I never heard that story. That's super cool. Well, that, I, I, you know, I wasn't there, but that's what Benny told me. And, and I mean, I'll never forget it. Benny just looked at me and goes, yeah, you know, Bruce, if you were good, you were pretty welcome in Bruce's group. So there's a completely independent confirmation, you know, no, no uh, uh, economically driven reason to lie or anything. But that was just his opinion. I, you know, I never forgot it. It was pretty cool. You want me to talk about Benny's seminar? <laughs> yeah, yeah, please. Okay. So, you know, you, you guys, you know, you guys will appreciate this. Back in the day, like the, uh, the remote, the channel changer was the youngest person in the room. Remember? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Phones yeah. had these things called cords. <laughs> There was uh, there was no internet. There was absolutely no internet. So if you wanted to see certain people or learn certain martial arts, you went to a seminar or you just forgot about it. 
And, you know, a lot of times these people come by once a year and, you know, you had to show up. So seminars were huge back then. I'd like to think at least in the Midwest, personally, I brought them back. It kind of died out for a while. Benny's seminar, I I don't remember how long that was, but it was it was easily three hours long. It could have been it could have been two days for all I remember. He did he he kept saying like there's five black belts in his family. They all used to cross train and drag each other's to each other's gyms. We did every classical martial arts conditioning drill known to mankind <laughs> for, it must have been two or 3,000 hours. So if you went through a Hapkido, Taekwondo, Shidokan, Shotokan, Judo, Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, Kenjutsu, Kendo, and five other things, you know, like, like the conditioning that those arts do, um, you know, the Gojin Ru where you bang the forearms and stuff. <laughs> if you just structured all that into like a two hour long workout, that's what we did the first two hours. It was alternately the greatest and the worst thing imaginable. <laughs> there was, there was one point I was working out with my partner who was, uh, quite a bit bigger than I was. And, uh, you got an okay. You got in a horse stance. Boy, I talk about turning on the way 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 back machine. Sure. You got in a horse stance, and your partner climbed up behind you and kind of put his legs on your thighs and grabbed your, uh, you know, neck with his hands and stood there. And then you did these little partial squats with your partner standing there. You know, I don't know. I don't know how many reps and set we we did, but I'm sure it's over the recommended daily allowance. <laughs> it was like uh you know it's like like uh one of those one of those commercial seal challenges people go to or something mm-hmm. and then at the end he taught techniques he called the uh he kept calling the foot the foot jab the football kick mm. now i never i never found out if he meant football the sport and if he meant american football or soccer yeah. or if he meant like kick with the ball of the foot, but he kept calling it the football kick, hmm. which is, you know, hysterical. And, uh, you know, Benny, Benny socially was a very nice guy. He wasn't mean or anything, perhaps not the, the Southern charm Larry had, but, you know, I have nothing but good memories of the guy. But when you got in the ring and, and he was very good, he didn't like abuse people, but however good you were, when that bell rang, he was just a little better, and he made it clear. Now, you know, basically, I was starting out, so being better than me wasn't any big deal. But, you know, I, I, you know, I got a three-minute drubbing, and people who were very, very good, they got a three-minute drubbing. And, again, I, I don't know how many rounds he did, but he did, he did a lot of rounds. So the traditional thing where at the end the instructor, like, beats up the whole class – he did that, and that was pretty good doing it in that class. It was a lot of people. So what else can I tell you guys? That's, you know, wh- let me ask you this. Where was that seminar at, out in California or out here? Degabrick Academy. Oh, in Chicago. Okay. Is that where you know uh, Rick from, uh, Joe, originally? Yeah, actually, I was going to bring that up. So he was, so I was doing what they called, like, the teenager class at that point. So I was in high school, 
And Rick, you know, like I said, he doesn't remember, you know, it's probably had a hundred million students that by this point, but uh, at the time he was a very big influence on me and it's constantly trying to like encourage, hey, focus on your boxing, focus on the fundamentals, which is something that is a direct line from those lessons from him to you, basically the same kind of theme as far as what I need to be working on to make sure I'm good at, you know, know the fundamentals, know your wrestling and boxing. And that he was a, a very early influence on that. Um, because I think this was pre kind of Muay Thai taking off because that's um, we all sure. had the same Muay Thai instructor that Dagerberg initially chat chai. Um, and, you know, I think when I knew Rick, it was kind of more of a they didn't call it mixed martial arts back then, you know, but it was definitely kind of a mixed approach. So you were doing a little bit of Kali, a little bit of kind of American kickboxing and and maybe a little bit of grappling or something. But it was just it was kind of, you know, there were attempts at a hybrid approach to martial arts was happening there. Uh, but I think kind of off in the corner, like they just basically was like Monday nights at 9 p.m. There was a single Muay Thai class. And if you heard about it, you know, they didn't advertise it that well, at least I don't remember it, but just by word of mouth, it's like, you really should probably go here and learn, you know, at this stage, this is the, these are the guys who are really kind of running this, I wouldn't say running the school, but they were the guys who were, if you wanted to be dangerous, you needed to hang with the, that group there. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting that, so that's exactly where we met. And I think I also, once or twice, I know you had a school up in Skokie. I think, is that when you first branched out on your own, Rick? I, I went up and definitely yep. visited you there. We were still working some Hartzell type grappling at that point. So I don't know if it was specifically at a certain point, there was a transition for you. And, and I'd be curious about that when it was like, because your focus became Muay Thai and promoting that art, you know, overall. I mean, was it a gradual thing or you're just, you just realized that this, this was your thing? Well, okay. Well, let's, let's go back to Daggerberg just for a minute. So mixed martial arts is a thing. There's a unified rule structure it's on television through many sanctioning bodies, UFC, Bellator, LFA. So when you say MMA, although words have meanings in a sentence, it means a very precise thing. The term they really used back then was blend. Because mm -hmm. people are trying to blend and learn all these different martial arts. And, and Degerberg in the late 70s, early 80s was kind of, when, when you were a kid, was a different world from the later versions. So back then, if you were in Chicago, but I really don't think uh, the rest of the United States was very different, you did a, a number of very, very clearly defined things. You did judo, you did taekwondo, you did boxing, or you did kung fu. And that was that. And a taekwondo school, you would you would kick air, kick paper, and kick people. There would not be a bag. And if you suggested they put a bag, they would look at you with horror. There would not be a ring. There would be absolutely no boxing gloves, although some of them had those little jahunri uh, plastic-coated things. If you were in a boxing gym... Like, if you kicked or you threw somebody, like, that's a foul. You got to go. The same with judo. Kung fu guys would have what everybody thinks of a muzhok, like the little tree with the arms on it. 
or they, they, they had all these just weird mujak. There was a seven-star praying mantis gym. But that's what you did. You hit the little tree with the wooden arms. You never wore gloves. So that was that. So you either did one of those arts or you were at Degerberg. And, and there was absolutely no bleed over. If you wanted to do boxing, throw a kick every blue moon, or incorporate a shoulder throw, or God help you roll around on the ground, you were you were 100% on Degerberg. If you did any kind of Filipino art, weapon art, you were at Degerberg. And it was a different gym back then. Dues were like 30 bucks a month. You had people from all over. And, you know, to be frank, it was a pretty rough place. Sparring was rough. And later it went in a different direction and kind of uh, systematized, standardized, and professionalized its training and went in a different direction. Well, that's let, let, me, let me kind of give you my perspective because I moved to Chicago in, um, at the end of 87, 1987. So I've been here 34, going to be 34 years. So one day... Uh, I decided to go to go to the uh, the public library downtown Chicago, and <clears throat> I requested some old telephone books from like the late sixties, early seventies. So you know, let's call it about twenty years before you know nineteen eighty seven. And and you're right. I specifically looked at martial arts schools and this and that, and the preponderance was judo, judo, judo. It was unreal. And then once in a blue moon, I would see a listing for uh, Korean karate, as they called it. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it really was. It was unbelievable. But now in real time in 1987, uh, the big schools that I recall were Degerberg. Uh, and, you know, forgive me for not remembering this, and I should, um, the big Hapkido school on Elston. Uh, Elston and Western, right? The guy yes. with the two doors. Yeah. Yes, exactly. exactly. And then you had uh, notorious uh, Chung Mu Kwan. And that's what I wanted to ask you about because I met one person that was allegedly a black belt from Chung Mu Kwan at a party. Uh, they ended up shutting that school down, but yeah. do you know anything about that? Well, I'm sure it's still online. Pam Zekman of Channel 2 News. Uh-huh. By the way, we we are just like riding our horses to work today and, and plowing behind a farm, going to the downtown Chicago library, not the Harold Washington library, the downtown Chicago library, and asking for phone books. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, <Hey>. my goodness. <laughs> I was inquisitive. <laughs> That was after he was playing his jazz records on the Victrola. Yeah. 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 I don't think, I don't think, I, you know, if I went into one of my classes and asked them how many of them have ever seen a phone book, you know, I wonder what, uh, <laughs> I'm laughing at my own jokes here. I wonder what, uh, what answer I'd get. They wouldn't have any idea, right? Well, it was very, things were very cut and dry. So if you did, this was before Chicago Fitness Center opened, all this other stuff. And uh, uh, 86, I think I've been there a few years. That's when I started switching over to Muay Thai. And, you know, it was just a different place. Things were very different. People could come in. Remember Gracie Challenge? You know, that wasn't that weird back then. 
the thought of somebody walking into a gym and going, hey, I want to fight in a challenging manner, not that strange. And, you know, if somebody called the police or called a lawyer for a lawsuit, they would have just laughed at you. You know, boy, look at that in today's world, right? Yeah, right. I mean, the uh, that's how that, that escalated between the Black Dragon, you know, Count Dante's thing and the Green Dragon and ended up yeah. dynamiting each other's dojos. And yeah, you you tell it to people nowadays, you're like, get out of here. Yeah, that, that, that actually happened. Well, the whole, I don't go back to Count Dante, but the whole, the, the whole Count Dante thing, I know more about that now than I do then because there's an <laughs> internet. Yeah. And like, like trying to explain to people, you know, anybody who listens to this, you got to look that guy up. Like that was real. And yeah, apparently it was real. Um, so back then, you know, now there's uh, Google reviews, which is pretty good. Some of the other reviews basically just tell you how much uh, the person being reviewed paid in uh, revenue. But Google reviews seems pretty legit. And there's all these mechanisms to find stuff out. So back then, a lot of people, what do they know? It's an Asian guy. It's uniforms. They got belts. They got all these names. This is the local gym. So they go in there and people act, you know, all martial artsy like they're uh, – Kwai Che King and Kung Fu and up, uh, yeah, I want to learn martial arts. So they join. Only much later are they able to find out that, you know, they're in a cult and, you know, plenty of them were casual students. They never found out. So I don't want to, um, I don't want to disrespect everyone who ever was a member of Chung Mu Kwan. You know, most people in the gym, they're just people in the gym. They don't know what's going on. They may never even talk to the owner. You know what I mean? But the original Chung Mu Kwan organization, yeah, actually was very bad. Uh, One of my students joined my gym because Chung Mu Kwan beat up his instructor. Because they actually used to dojo storm and dojo bust. Not in the modern jujitsu stance where we all come in, show respect, roll around and, you know, I don't want to say have fun, but you know, it's more positive. Uh, no, they used to actually show up and beat the crap out of students and beat the crap out of instructors. I mean, I don't want to get sued for that, but I heard that many times. Uh, one of my students is his lifelong instructor quit because they beat him up. As he told the story, he, he went to his car in the parking lot and uh, like, you know, five of them popped out. And they're, you know, blah, 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 we challenge you. So, again, this is his version of the story. No videos available. And, you know, he fought him. And then, you know, then they got smart and they pulled out martial arts weapons and the group beat his head in. Or at least that's what I was told. And, you know, boy, there's a lesson for you in the martial arts. You know, there's a lesson for you on self-defense and your personal safety. You know, don't don't be believing in your, your ring skills, you know. Survival, survival's number one, right? I'm so, yes, I agree with you, hundred thousand percent. It's, you know, I just saw a video this week uh, of a, and it sickened me, of an Asian lady. Turns yeah. out she, five, you saw her getting stomped by that big dude, and there's witnesses. Not only did they do nothing, they 
they closed the door. They were so, you know, just didn't want to get involved. And I always tell everyone on this show or anybody I've ever trained, anytime you get into a fight, do not expect anybody at all to help you. You know, expect to be on your own. And at this, yeah, so you're right. Your ring skills, if that's all you train is boxing and moving around or tie or this, whatever, uh, there's more to it than that. <laughs> You'll find out, unfortunately, right? Well, I think I think Muay Thai is number one. But if you're very good, very very good at something, undoubtedly, you know, you you can fight pretty effectively with it. But you know, in your in your mind, in a you know, they didn't they didn't they didn't call a promoter and challenge you to a ring fight. You, you know what I mean? Right. They wanted to fight fair. They would have called a promoter and challenged you to a ring fight. So right there, they started you know, kind of underhanded underground. So, you know, in your mind, you don't want to limit yourself. You know, the, the way the Gracie's did it was smart. They had challenges, but they had a bunch of people around making sure that the guy's friend doesn't hit you in the back of the head with a baseball bat, you know? And, you know, if you're by yourself, you don't really have a referee to watch for that stuff. So, you know, you better, better make survival job one. But um, they were going around back then. They were beating people up. I heard all these stories. The only guy I know is secondhand through my student, but he was very tore up about it. So I'm inclined to believe there's at least some truth there. Now, my gym, we used to get these, these weird phone calls. So, you know, 90, 98% of all people that call a gym say the exact same thing. Now, to you, you've had thousands of these calls, so, you know, you, you got to be careful. It could get boring. But to them, like, you're the first guy they spoke to. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's an important decision. You're like a car salesman. Car salesman sold 100 of cars that month, but the person coming in, they're only going to buy one car every five to ten years, so it's a big deal for them. So you have to have a certain, you know, a sensitivity to the people you're talking to. But there were all these calls, and you could see it was fake. Because they just completely didn't care. When he opened, yeah, 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 okay. Uh, how much you charge? Yeah, 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 okay. Uh, how long is class? Uh, what do I got to wear? You know, they kind of run through the list. And, and after a while, you could smell it. And then they go, what do you think of Chung Kwan? Which <laughs> is really what they wanted to ask, you know? There you go. And, and you could tell, because usually when people ask price, you know, that's a legit question. You know, people want to know, and they want to know exactly what they're going to get and how they pay and everything else. And you can see when they weren't even taking price seriously, they're here from other things. What do you think of Chung Kwan? And uh, I, I can't really repeat on this podcast how I would answer that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's something to the effect of, how do you feel of being challenged? And I'm like, listen, you know, sign a liability release and we get to film it. Yeah. Never came in. So that's all I can tell you. Yeah, I, I remember when Pan Zekman, um, they did, a, when she did her interview, or her, her uh, not interview, but her uh, investigation. Yeah. And I also remember they showed a clip of, you had Fred Degerberg and other owners, established owners, 
of martial arts schools, they had like a little committee. Um, they got yeah. together someplace, it may have been a restaurant, I don't recall, but I tend to want to believe they were all sitting around a, a large table, like discussing, you know, what, what can we do here? Um, but yeah, I know for a fact that it was a, Chung Mu Kwan was part of a, another group that similar tactics, apparently, that were, that ex, were established on the East Coast. I don't remember. It was similar in name. Um, I don't recall what it was called. I'm sure some of my friends on the East Coast would know. But, uh, you know, you, you run into that. I mean, you, it's unfortunate, but you do. I, we knew or I knew a guy from Cleveland, not martial art related, but mu- he was a musician who uh, got involved in a, some sort of a religious cult. Uh, sure. And they eventually his family uh, kidnapped him out of there. But he was never the same. He was mentally, he, he couldn't even take care of himself. He could still play the guitar, um, but he was never the same after that. And he's a legend. He was a legend. He passed away a few years ago uh, by the name of Glenn Schwartz. And guys like Clapton and all those rockers would, would go hear him when they were in Cleveland. But yeah, he, he you know, so you got to be careful of that stuff. So um, if I, I'm, I'll put you in touch. I don't want to say the last name. I have a friend named Gian. And he was a member of the, um, the original Cobra Kai. And he was a member of uh, Chung Mu Kwan also. And uh, I think it would be fair to say, I don't want to speak for him. Not a fan of, not a fan of the Chung, not a fan of the Chung. And I always refer to him as the foremost living expert on Chung Mu Kwan. And if he's not, he'll do until that guy shows up. And he can break down the forms and when the forms came from and, you know, ping, ping, pong, ching, something or other in China developed this form. And they, they're only doing the right-hand side, not the left-hand side. You, you, got, you, guys, you guys want to have a Chung Mu Kwan night, you got to have him on. He oh, just, knows, cool. just knows everything, yeah. A real expert on that. Well, you know, let's get into you with the with the tie boxing. Um, you know, this what what do you think was the the catalyst that really made you say, okay, I want to dedicate my my at least my my fighting part of my life to Muay Thai. What what was it, or was it a combination of things? Well, you know, it's it's like uh, when you're in school. And you see the guidance counselor, they try to figure out, you know, your parents are telling you to be a doctor, you know, I don't know, not my parents, concert violinist or something. You you know what I mean? Yeah. And and here you are and you're like, wait a minute, I'm going to have to do this stuff a lot. Like a couple times we've had these, uh, you know, learn to code movements, you know, become a computer programmer. Oh, look, they make all this money. Well, the good ones, you know, if you're a nerd, I'm kind of half a nerd. If you can sit in front of a computer for 12 days, you know, programming is probably a good choice for you. You know, if you want to be outside playing baseball, that's kind of like really bad advice. (laughs) So personally, I'm much better at some things than other things. Uh, I don't want to use Kali's like a little too precise, but. Because, you know, there's all these, uh, you know, in today's world, there's a million little offshoots, whatever. 
I, I love Kali. I think Kali's wonderful. I can't believe it's more popular. If I could do it for a reasonable price, I'd still be going to Kali seminars. But I, I am I am just not good at Kali, and I'm just not a good Kali teacher. Okay. Uh, Larry's stuff, I think it's fair to say I'm better at it, and I'm a better teacher. Uh, boxing and Muay Thai, yeah, uh, you know, I got old, but uh, I used to be able to do that stuff okay, and uh, I can teach it well. So part of it was, um, like, where do your gifts lie? You, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I know you always wanted a secret career in modern interpretive dance, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, it was your, your childhood dream, and then you got over 200 pounds, and you had to give it up. No, but, I mean, that happens to people. Yeah. You know, they want to be gymnastics, and girls grow to be 5'7", yeah. and, you know, there's no 5'7 Olympic gymnast. you got to find something else. So part of it was uh, my my inclination and what I really enjoyed. And um, so I really loved it. I thought I could explain it and teach it well. And the, the training opportunities were just uh, un- unbelievable. You know, um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is a great art. But in this area, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was very cliquish. If you're in one group, you couldn't even really talk to people in another group. Back then, I don't mean now. I'm not commenting on politics now. I mean back when it first came out. It was uh, heart-stoppingly expensive. Uh, working out was like a real, it was a real problem. You know, like you, you, you pay 200 a month and you can come to the gym once a week. And I'm not smart enough to pick something up once a week. Whereas Muay Thai... You could do Muay Thai anywhere with anyone, and they'd just be happy to see you. And, you know, there's rivalry and ego and competition, but we're all doing the same art. You know what I mean? You know, you might be kind of my greatest enemy, but we can still do pads. Because you want want pads and you need a holder. I need pads and I need a holder. You know, some of my, my, ah, Jason Sodder. Some of my greatest training partners were just guy there trying to homicidally murder me every round, you know? So the, 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 the inclination, the ability, the opportunity, and uh, I waited a long time to go to Thailand. Because um, let's just say training in Thailand covers a wide spectrum. And uh, thanks to Bob Carmel, I could go into the original uh, Fairtex Muay Thai camp. Sam Shepard wrote a book called The Fighter's Heart. Uh, I did not meet him there because we were not there on the same time. But he wrote about the original uh, Fairtex camp quite a bit. And if I could have dragged you guys on the plane with me, you'd both be Muay Thai guys now. You, you, you couldn't believe it. Uh, Philip Wong, I got in there. Well, I got in. I want to give full credit to Bob Carmel. Bob Carmel owns uh, Golden Boy uh, Muay Thai Gym and Promotions in Arizona, which is a fantastic gym. If you're ever in Arizona, if you're ever in Phoenix, you should check it out. Nick and Nick, Nick Chastine and Damien Early, too. Um, but because of him, we could get in there. 
and uh, Philip Wong, Asian gabillionaire. So, okay, this is going to run a little long, and I apologize. Go ahead. If you're in America and you're super-duper rich, you buy a football team, you buy a baseball team, you buy, like, like racehorses, stuff like that, right? Maybe a yacht. You know, I don't know. I've never been that rich. But, you know, if any of you guys have some extra money to give me, you know, I'll take it. Um, in Thailand, particularly back then, now there's more a tendency for the billionaire class to buy a soccer team. But back then, that just for many reasons, that just wasn't going on. They started, they started, uh, they, they had Thai camps. And they were all these uh, very hardworking, very intelligent, very industrious entrepreneur types that kind of clawed and made it to the top, you know. And everybody, everybody all goes, oh, family money, family money. Staying super rich for generations takes a lot of work, you know. Mm -hmm. to, to, to stay up there is hard. So a certain kind of individual had that level of success in Asia. And in, in the Thais, they all just ended up being big fans of Muay Thai. And they would build these camps kind of in their, not in their house, but in their house complex. And, you know, they just love the sport. They just love the art. So the original Fairtex camp, now now there's there's other ones, and in many ways it's much better now. But back then, stuff was just so cool. So uh, it was very hard to get to. Nobody spoke English. A lot of pointing and praying that the cab driver is going to go where you tell him to. <laughs> and you get there, and there's at the end of this uh, you know long driveway, there's a gate. And there's a little guy in a uniform that speaks no English. And, you know, when you're walking up, oh, Frank, Frank, Frank. And he calls the big house and they start calling Philip. Philip might be in Singapore. You know what I mean? But before you walk in, you know, phone calls are flying around the globe for his uh, international textile business. And uh, you walk down this long driveway. Later on, there was an equipment factory. There was all this other stuff, but we can save that for another show. And, uh, like on the left was Philip's house, which was kind of small, but kind of like lifestyles of the rich and famous. Um, I don't know how much Philip wants me talking about his house, but when you first walked in, he had a Japanese suit of armor, a real one. Hmm. You know how much a real Japanese suit of armor costs? No clue. Well, I, I wouldn't know enough to buy one, but it's astronomical, you know? Hmm. That's something you usually see in a museum. So, so Philip's house was very high level, very home beautiful. And then that's if you, like on the left side. To the back was all these, I'll call them apartments, for the staff. We'll say the, the, the trainers, the groundskeeper, the servants that took care of the house, all that stuff. And on the right was the Thai boxing camp. And uh, uh, Brian Popejoy has a lot of video up on the boxing works because Brian's a back-in-the-day guy, too. Probably the most famous Muay Thai coach in America right now, or one of them. And uh, he has all this really good video of that up on his boxing works website. And uh, there were three packed rings, and the fighters kind of lived on top. 
and uh, they live they live like Thai farmers, which is very collective and very poor. And you know, it was it was just it was just the greatest training in the world. And I, I remember Philip coming out and uh, just starts yelling at people in Thai, and everybody's running around because it's the big boss, and they're trying to get some facility ready for us to stay. And Philip's like, "Hey, Rick." You know, I was with like Troy Neindorf, uh, who teaches at uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, at Chosen Few, I'm trying to name drop all my friends so they get a student. Um, hey, hey, we live in a capitalist country, buddy. Um, I just remember Philip looking at me and goes, "It's okay. Can you stay here?" And I'm like, "Sure." And we had sleeping bags and mats, and we just threw them in the floor, and there's our room. And uh, you know, Philip Wong couple of Rolls Royces in the driveway, international businessman, you know, these huge deal looks at me and looks a little comfortable and is like, can't I charge you? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, how about a hundred? And, uh, I'm like, sure. He goes, yeah, okay. A hundred a month. And I, I think, I think I went like, no, no, hundred a week, hundred a week. That's ridiculous. We can't stay here for a hundred dollars a month. Room, board, food, training—you know—it's oh. ridiculous. We'll give you, we'll give you a hundred a week for the two of us. And now later on, uh, through the efforts of a lot of people, they actually made it more uh, uh, systematic and commercialized, and they had standard prices and all that. But for a few years there is pretty awesome. And now going and training in Thailand is a very, you know, it's like staying in an international hotel. It's a very standardized thing. There's websites with the prices and you know, that's better. It is, it is better, but it was, it was cooler then. you know, like the old, I'm talking too long, but the old Bumpini stadium, and there were many uh, iterations of that. That stadium's gone now. They have a new one. The first time I went there, it was—I think it was me and some guy from Norway were the only Ferang there, the only non-Thai there. And uh, there were three levels. There was like the floor level, sitting ringside, which basically nobody did. There was like a mid-level, and there was. Uh, a third level behind chicken wire where all the gamblers sat. And uh, you couldn't really sit in the gambler section. I can talk about that too. But I think it was like three bucks to sit in the cheap seats. So the ties, there'd be like seven to nine fights and the card would be more. It'd be uh, 10 to 12, 13 fights. But the, uh, the, the, uh, the main event would be in the middle, not the end, okay? And, uh, you know, if you go on Muay Thai Scholar, those are the fights. You could go in there and watch those fights for three bucks hmm. with, with Thai people betting amounts of money you just couldn't, you couldn't believe. Because, again, no Internet. Now it's all on cell phone and stuff. So back then, you don't look too bored. So uh, the odds, and I am... I am the complete opposite of an expert on this, but just to give you an idea. So people are betting uh, over and under. People are betting the odds. 
like like the like the uh, hand signals at the old board of trade. Five to one, three to two, like that. Okay. They can be betting on the fight. They can be betting on the round. They can be betting on whatever. And again, other people much more knowledgeable than I am. And they'll be looking. They don't point, but you know, like you catch my eye and I catch your eye, and I'm like three two, and you're like four one, and I'm like, and then you give up, and then somehow they signal how much money. And people, so a, a purple, it's 500 baht. Back then it was 20 baht. 20 bucks, excuse me. These guys would pull out stacks of purple this thick. And that was that was the wager. And you, you could be on the other side of the stadium. And, and like the hot potato, he would hand it to the guy next to him who would just hand it all the way across to that guy. And that would be going like all over the stadium. And I'm like, I don't know how much money a stack of 20s is like this, but that's a lot of money to be handing to somebody 100 feet away. That's some wild stuff, man. And what year is this? Early 90s. Oh, so 30 years ago, pretty much. We all have happy memories of my our youth, my friend. Oh, man. Yeah, it, it, right? <laughs> yeah. Ah, that's interesting. Let, let me let me ask you this: If, if you a- guys if you guys could have gone with Troy and me, and and Brian Popejoy did come with us. He came over when he was, I think, sixteen and seventeen with us. And you could have seen like the Lumpini Stadium experience back then, and it was a very very bare bones place. You know, the the bathrooms did not really have hand dryers and mirrors and marble. You, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's very, uh, you can't say it in today's world, very third world, right? And uh, it rough. If you could have seen those fights for what we're paying to it for it and how close we are to the action and everything else, you would have been captivated. I, I woke up, you know, you, well, actually I didn't, I didn't wake up. We'd, uh, I, I tried waking up and I abandoned it as a concept and I just started running when I was asleep and I'd, I'd wake up like 30 minutes into it. It just saved, it was just so much more pleasant, you know, save like 30 minutes of suffering, you know, <laughs> like getting up an hour early, drinking all this coffee, trying to wake up, ah! just go out there asleep. But, you know, you go for this uh, crazy long run, much less long, much less long in my case. And you're working out for hours with literally the best in the world. You know, not like you're sparring them or stuff, but you're doing pads, you're next to them, you're hitting the bag next to them with, um, you know, a lot of martial arts, monkey see, monkey do. If everybody around you is really good, it starts rubbing off. Again, less so in my case, but still. And then, uh, you know, eat some food and try not to die. And, you know, in the afternoon, you know, light jump rope or a light jog. And it's the same thing again. And, you know, all these legends of the 90s, that was the period. You know, you're watching these guys work out every day, and you're in the ring next to them. You know, my trainer was, uh, you know, I had many trainers there. Abide Sitharun, who's now passed, you know, fighter of the century from the king of Thailand. Hmm. You know, I mean, I, I got, I, like, I hung out with that guy every day. Uh, uh, Jakrit, Jakrit's on Facebook. 
I, was, I believe head trainer at Sitsong Pinon. So if you go on Facebook, Ajahn uh, Jakrit, J-A-K-K-I-R-T, you know, that guy, tra- training with that guy, training with that guy, like like sparring would be easier, right? Yeah. Working top pads with that guy, like an actual fight would be kind of a step down. And uh, it, it, there, there's video of him online. It's just ridiculous how good that guy was. We're working out with that guy every day, sometimes twice a day. You know, it's just the greatest training imaginable. So how could you... How could you not be captivated? How could you not be in love with it? That's great. Very well put. You don't, we don't, people, it's different here, you know, especially nowadays. Maybe it's even different there, but you had a great opportunity, man. And at least you made it. You made the most of it. That's great. I mean, that's awesome. Well, you're old enough to appreciate this. So um, was it uh, Pumping Iron? which is a great yeah. documentary. You know, people talk about training with Bruce Lee. So before there was an internet, if you were in California back then, you could have gone to World's Gym and Gold's Gym if you knew about it. You know, and people just stumbled into it on vacation sometimes. If you knew about it, you could have gone to either Gold's or World's and you could have just walked in there and, you know, very possibly worked in with Arnold if you were strong enough. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now, with the Internet, you can't get within 100 miles of those people. You know, everybody training with Bruce Lee. Everybody forgets Bruce Lee had private groups with all these, you know, talented people. In a school, people just walked in and joined. You know, they didn't know the guy was going to become a living legend 40 years later. It was just, oh, they're in my local gym. Huh, kind of on my way home from work. Mm-hmm. Ah, this looks weird. I'll do some Kung Fu. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, it was different then. Things were more uh, accessible. Yeah, and I think not just that. You're right. It's accessible, and it was more, I mean, you know, you actually had to do some legwork, you know, to, to get out there and search this out. I I remember, um, even with me, and I'm nowhere near as old as, like, Bruce Lee would have been, but... Uh, back in the 90s, I mean, yeah, there was the internet, but still people had to do a lot of, lot more physical legwork. Now it's just, let me go online, and let me type in a school in, I don't know, Omaha, Nebraska, see what comes up. You know, we could, you know, that's, that, that makes things a, a lot more convenient. So for me as an instructor, I would always say if somebody went through all the effort back then, 20 years ago, to find me and show up, I, I gave that person credit for that. Sure. So I'm sure it's you know, with you. Pre, you know. pre, pre-internet, it's a different world. Yeah, now, right. somebody makes a meme of something you do in a fight or you win a promotion. Somebody can get online and book a private with you for unbelievable amounts of money, right? Yeah. You know, back then, wasn't like that. Remember in the gym when you're learning how to lift weights? You know, what was the original training program in the gym? You look around the gym and who's the biggest guy and what are they doing? And, you know, you try to behave yourself around that guy and you hope he gives you some advice, you know. And in many ways, that system was better. But in many ways, not so. But that's not the world we live in anymore. You know, that's true. Even like in the pool, shooting pool. I love to play pool. That's how it was back then. 
you didn't go up. You didn't. Nobody even gave lessons, really. It was like you watch or you got better by losing money, you know, by playing the better guy for cash. You lose, you try to pick things up. And even with the boxing, I try, try to tell people, like, when I was learning how to box, yeah, like you, I, I did have a coach now and then, but it's generally you're thrown into the gym, you watch everybody else, you see how they're throwing the punches and moving, you kind of figure it out. And now and then the the guy, the coach will say, step into the jab or whatever, you know. Um, now everybody, a lot of people, I didn't say everybody, but a lot of people want to really be spoon-fed everything. Well, you have to be very careful because, you know, I don't want to say things were better now or better then, but they were, they were different. I think more people do it now and probably more fit and more athletic people. But back then people were rougher because you had to be. You know, a lot of gyms, the first lesson was like literally beating the crap out of you, both grappling-based systems and striking-based systems. You know, your your first, you know, free lesson <laughs> yeah. was, was you know, sparring or rolling to a level that, you know, that kind of freaked people out today. So, you know, that's that's not how, that's not how it's done now. I'm not suggesting going back to the old ways. But uh, there were, there were, you know, things things were different. And for Thailand, I will address this. If anyone's seriously thinking about going to Thailand, uh, through you, they can certainly contact me. And and to clarify it, so we we should address this. Is the old training still available? Yes, it is. Is the new training available? Yes, it is. So I would say there are Thai, Thai-only camps. And I'm not going to attach any memes to this because people would get very upset with me. It's not that they, they Thrang, foreigner, non-Thai. It's not that they don't want Thrang there, but it's not a good place to go on your first trip. You don't speak Thai. You don't understand the food. You don't know how to do your laundry. You don't know how to use the bathroom. You know, when was the last time you washed your clothes in a bucket? right yeah like never <laughs> never yeah right so it's not they don't want you there it's just they're not set up for it and nobody can really like walk you through it if you've been to thailand a few times you know how to order food you know how to act you know how to behave you know how to do your laundry you're fine they could care less you're you're one of the team but the first time it's kind of a thai only not that they're you know elitist or something but they're just, they're just not ready to deal with your, your issues. Then there's, and some of these are very famous, and they have great Internet presence. Well, if a camp has great Internet presence, that means a certain portion of the camp energy is going to marketing, which in some camps would be 98%. So those camps, they're really not set up for training. They're set up for the, the holiday casual experience. And if that's what you want, those camps are pretty rocking because they're beautiful. There's drones flying through. You know, it's a very pleasant experience. And, you know, if that's what you want, I recommend it, and those camps are very good. And then I would say there's a sweet spot. So if you could break it down, how's the camp making, making its money? Is the camp making its money training TIE fighters 
to fight in Thailand and live off their winnings, or is the camp making its money off of tourist money? And the camp's going to be a completely different camp, whether it's one of those two things. And there, there is still, thank God, a sweet spot of camps that make their money off of fighters or, or the fighting so ingrained in the people it's the same camp. And you can go there and be comfortable as a first-time tourist. So you can have, like a lot of things in Thailand, you can have any experience you want. You just have to decide very clearly. But I, I will say, I know you want to talk. I will say, don't base your decisions on marketing programs of some famous person or equipment company or blah, blah, blah. Oh, look at all these great videos. Well, they might look great to you as a beginner, but, you know, find a more experienced person to kind of kind of shush you through the training. Okay, I'll shut up. No, I can fully understand. I, I have no insight into to that particularly, but, yeah, I do know of, of, of that kind of stuff. Like, uh, I, I'm trying to trying to think of the uh, correlation, but, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of like City Slickers, the movie where they all went out to that yeah. cattle ranch. Well, you know, it was a vacation kind of cattle ranch. It wasn't, you know. Yeah, so, yeah you, you do have that. And you probably have that out here in certain places as well. Uh, but yeah, the, the, some of it's, and, and you know what, even the hardcore, like when I was rocking and rolling with the gym, the, the hardcore was was too hardcore for, you know, so many people that come out and they're like, okay, got to tone it down. Um, so yeah, even for people who may think they're ready for the hardcore, they may not be. Yeah, Muay, Muay Thai, to me, the strength of Muay Thai is they've figured out a training method other than sparring or rolling. We'll just put it that way. Not that they don't spar. They do spar. But, uh, you know, like the Dutch, Dutch are great. Dutch produce champions. Everything's fine. But the, the Dutch system generally, I don't want all this like hate, once a week you spar like it's a fight. Once a week, they do super-duper hard sparring. And then the rest of the week, they're doing drills. The ties, I think they developed this because they're fighting so much. There's bags, there's tie pad drills, there's partner drills. There's all this stuff because you want to you want to uh, preserve your fighter because he's fighting 10 or 15 times a year. So you, you can't be banging him up, just like football. You know, how often do you see a full pads and helmet scrimmage in a football practice? Almost never, because you got to play every Sunday and you can't be injuring your people, right? Like that. So the ties have developed a whole system to make people good without hurting them. Well, you know, I may not be fighting to, you know, feed my family in Thailand, but I too, <laughs> I too want to become good without becoming injured. You, you know what I mean? Correct. Grappling too. Grappling too, you know, if you run it like a like a high school wrestling practice, yeah, good luck because people aren't in high school and uh, you know their shoulders are going to come off, their elbows are going to come out. You know, you need need to change your attitude a little bit. But Muay Thai, it's it would be different from like, um, you know, like to be a competitive boxer. Yeah, you're going to take some abuse. Muay Thai is much better on that. But in terms of hard work, maybe even more, maybe even harder. You know? Yeah, the conditioning. Yep. 
So, Joe, what is your uh, questions here? Come on. Well, it's funny because he's kind of answering a lot of them, just talking about his experience because, uh, you know, Rick and I had talked prior to this uh, this call here, and I mentioned that my son Casey's in Thailand, and, you know, even though he can speak Thai and he's been there for a few years, he has struggled to really find, now he has found, he trains in Krabi Kabrong with the Budai Swan Institute, and we were able to get that uh, connection through Tony Moore. He was he was able to hook that up for us, but uh you know, and I wish actually I should have had Casey on this broadcast because he could probably be, give you more specifics. But he, as a, as a, you know, as a foreigner, did run into some kind of, he felt like almost cultural things, or he just had trouble understanding how to get pricing and how to, you know, to get into, into different camps to train there. I mean, he's not super serious, but I think, you know, as part of his Thai experience, he would definitely want to train there. But he's also struggled to kind of, he couldn't tell, uh, you know, if they, if, what the price negotiation was, what was appropriate. There was a lot of things that was, was, it felt difficult for him to kind of negotiate. He didn't want to insult anybody, but it does take some guidance. So, um, you know, it kind of is in line with some of the things you're saying that, you know, it's not even for someone who's been there for a while without someone on the inside kind of helping you and, and showing you around, it's gotta be hard to kind of work your way, especially into, I think, a more authentic um, scenario. Cause you're right. I've seen definitely on the, you know, when you Google around and search the website, there's definitely camps that look like they could be run here in the U.S. Like, you know, it's like you fly 13 hours and it's like you're back kind of in the States training. You know, you don't have the, you don't, you know, if someone who's a fan of, of Thai culture and Thai arts, you, you probably want to have the, how do those fighters actually train? How do they live and train? Or maybe you think you do, maybe you don't. Um, well, the camp is as beautiful or more beautiful than any gym in America. Everybody in there is a Ferrang. And uh, so, you know, you guys had me on to tell stories. So, yeah, I got a big mouth. I got a lot of stories. So every one of these camps from, you know, some someplace with like one bag and a lot of dirt to places where it takes 12 minutes for the drone to fly around the campus, they all have, they all have spectacular trainers, every single one. But that's like saying a, a, a university has, you know, Nobel Prize winners. You may never see that guy. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, there's one video. I don't want to say the fighter's name, but the guy's like super legendary. And uh, he's working with some, uh, you know, very nice female, very, very cute outfit. And, you know, she's, she's a good, hardworking, sincere student. So full respect to her. But the guy, the guy throws this little tricky elbow, and I rewound it several times. I'm like, that is as perfect an execution of that technique as I've ever seen in my life. And I'm just like, you know, I, I watched it. I kind of, you know, whatever, reviewed it thoroughly. And then I go, I'm dying to see him feed her this round. And she did not throw that elbow one time in that round. <laughs> in fact, she didn't do anything right for three minutes, but she got a great workout. And the whole time he's going beautiful, beautiful. Oh, you're so good. And, you know, I thought, you know, the little light bulb goes off. I go, this is the essence of a tourist camp. This is the essence of a casual experience. And, you know, it's good. Every It's win-win. He's happy. He's getting paid. She's happy. She's having a wonderful experience. And, and this is not gender specific. This happens to, you know, plenty of men. It just it struck me on this video. 
you go you go to a Thai camp. You do a move wrong, they hit you with a stick. I mean, they're not belligerent about it, but you know, yeah, you better get there right, Rocky. You'll get an explanation. You'll get a clear explanation. You'll get a demonstration. And you know, like, uh, well, I never went to school back in the day, but remember, like, teachers used to hit students with rulers and stuff. Yes. Thank, thank God, I kind of missed that. Well, you went to Catholic school, obviously. I, yeah, I went to Catholic yeah. school. <laughs> well, you know, like a like a Thai Thai camp, a, a nun a nun would understand that process. Yeah. You're, you're given a reasonable amount of time, and yeah, the Thai they'll hit them with a stick. And if they love you, they'll hit you with a stick, too, because it's all based on your becoming a winning fighter. So if you spent 30 years of your life training people to be winning fighters, you can't really turn that off. Yeah. So the other place is far more casual on the execution. So it's not necessarily, you know, someone in a, in a tourist camp, they might actually be more fit. They might actually be more athletic. But if, I don't know, they're not pivoting their foot or something, no trainer is going to tell them. See where I'm going with this? Yes. So they, they get kind of a false impression on how awesome they are. Uh, kind of a nine-round experience. Nothing's as bad as nine-round, of course. They can sue me. Uh, although, to be fair, uh, Paul, <clears throat> a friend of mine named Paul won the Golden Gloves four times, and he owns a nine-round. So his nine round probably has better boxing than half the gyms in America. But uh, I think he lives in Charlotte. If anybody wants his address, they can call me. But, you know, in, in a, in a, you know, a Thai fighter or in a Thai camp, if you're, if you're making a mistake like that, well, either, either, either you really like getting hit with a stick or you're going to have to leave or you're going to have to get it right. There's no fourth option. You know, there's, there's, you know, you're going to have like some nice welts <laughs> or you're going to be packing up and going to a commercial camp or, or your form is going to be pretty, pretty spot on. Yeah, that's an interesting, I'm glad you brought that up. I really am because it's something that needs to be heard that in, in my circles that exists here in America, in, in a way, not, not the elaborate uh, vacation spa type of training, sure. but the uh, feel-good experience, you know, build them up, make them smile, uh, here's your certificate at the end, and, you know, now they leave with a, you know, kind of inflated ego, and, you know, everybody's happy, I guess, like you said, right? You know, uh, a friend of mine, we are just talking about this, He's had a couple people, well, Troy, Troy Neindorf up in Madison. Uh, he's, he's got a website, Troy Neindorf, N-I-N-E-B-O-R-F, Muay Thai, Madison. Uh, he's teaching at Chosen Few Gym, which is a very successful MMA gym. But he's teaching, uh, he's teaching Muay Thai. You know, he's had, and, and, you know, people up there, they're, they're big on traveling. And they're, oh, I'm going to go to such and such famous camp. And I'm going to work with such and such famous guy, and they're going to spend just an ungodly amount of money. And then when they come back, you know, I you know, think they're going to be like uh, like Captain America in that movie. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Where he went from the wimpy guy to Captain America. 
And and my friend, it's just like like a couple times, I almost started crying on him. He goes, "That's a complete waste of your time and money. That's not a. That's not a. You, 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 there's more quality training experiences. Now, my business partner in my gym. Again, I don't want I don't want to say the name because people will flip. He went to what is now a very commercial gym and trained with a very very. Uh, commercially famous fighter and it was kind of before that gym took off and I'll explain why in a minute so he went in there and it was just kind of hanging around doing nothing bored and he got like a three hour long private from this guy you know what I mean mm-hmm. for very little money because it, it was just at the right time if you go in that gym now it's going to be 10 times the money and that guy's not going to be like, oh, great, a foreigner walked in. I'm happy to see him. I can practice my English, work on my teaching. You know, it's going to be, okay, how many more of these can I go? Here's what changed. So uh, Google Maps, I'm going to compress this for time. Google Google Maps got a walk feature. So um, before, I'm trying to think of a name. If you if you had a website and it said twenty four dash seven, so come to soy nine, you would actually have to find that. Those street signs may not be in a language you can read. Oh. That could be very hard to find. The people on that street may not speak any language they can uh, you know understand with you. They may not know nor care that there's a Thai boxing camp down there. Right, because not everybody in Muay Thai cares, and not everyone in Thailand cares about Muay Thai, right? Right. You you can live across the street from the most famous Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu school on the planet, and you know if the guy doesn't exercise, like he could care. You know what I mean? So it's like that. When Google Maps had a function where you could type the address in, and and the phone just kind of like you know walked you there, then that camp became hugely commercially successful and took off. Because if you don't have that little phone directing you, it's super hard to find. So that's what changed there. So it can be, uh, ooh, big word, tertiary factors. You know what I mean? Google provided a navigation system. So now that's a commercially successful camp. And, you know, there's like 150 people in it. Whereas before, when there were zero people in it, there's a much better training opportunity. So I'm going to, again, all about the promotion here. Uh, if anybody wants to learn Kirby Kerbong or Thai Sword, uh, my my original instructor, who's also the guy who trained Tony Moore, Wilrita uh, Mesaman, he's still around, and he's still teaching under his own banner. And uh, that guy, that guy is just uh, just a, a treasure of the world, completely amazing. So he's still around and he's still teaching. So if anybody wants to learn the original Thai Sword in Mui Baran, they can get in touch with me with you and we can, we can hook you right up with him, which is a completely different experience from a Thai camp. And he's in Thailand, correct? Yes. He's in a, uh, Eastern suburb of Bangkok. So if you just want to take a day, he could probably go to Bangkok and meet you, but it's better. Uh, I haven't been there in a while, but a lot of my friends went there. There's this, uh, 
well, it sounds silly to say a Thai resort when it's in Thailand, but it's a it's a Thai resort that only only Thai only Thai people would go to. So they they just you get rooms there and you work out there. It's like a Thai uh, Thai resort health spa. Hmm. It's very nice. But you know we we you know a little planning we we can hook you up we can hook you up. Want to learn the weapon? Want to learn the baran? Want to learn you know you know Muay Thai? And, you know, there's legit camps that, you know, run the gambit from, you know, like older people with serious jobs will be just fine and well-trained to camps where, yeah, you're kind of joining the Marine Corps for a few weeks. You know what I'm saying? It's, uh, we, we, you know, we can help you out. I don't get paid for that, by the way, just so everybody knows. You know, Joe, this is something that your son, uh, Casey, should look into this gentleman. Absolutely. I was, that's exactly what I was thinking. It's like, at, the minute I get off of this, I'm going to have to say, Casey, look up Rick. Because, you know, yeah, Casey probably knows specifically where you're talking about, too. I mean, he's been all over the country. So it'd be pretty, you know, yeah, I'm very excited about the possibilities there. Because, um, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, it's kind of digressing here. But um, uh, so I had an opportunity to learn the Thai weapons art from Chat Chai. But as kind of a dumb kid, I, I, I literally blew it off, you know, because I figured, well, I don't think I was going to, you know, at the time as a kid, I was thinking more pragmatically. I don't think I'm going to be in a sword fight, you know, anytime soon. I learned the Muay Thai. So I kind of blew off the opportunity to learn that other art, you know, and it's kind of one of the big regrets of just kind of, I don't know, you know, it's one of those things when something kind of cool comes your way casually, you maybe don't necessarily appreciate it like you should, at least especially when you're an immature kid, you know, you don't. And so I didn't uh, take the time then to train it. Um, so Casey going there kind of like, he just did it as he, cause he loves to travel. He went there as an exchange student. And I said, if you're going to Thailand, please see if you can look the system up and see if you can just, you know, just go to train, you know, for a weekend or whatever, just to say you, you, you were there and kind of, uh, and, you know, try and look up my old teacher and stuff like that. And, um, uh, we were able to get a connection there and it actually, they were so welcoming to him and there was, you know, he had such a great experience there the first time training. Um, the, the original uh, Pa crew, who was the original trainer, had already passed away, but the, the wife was still there and the son. But anyways, the long story short is he so much fell in love with the country um, that he went, he went back there. But uh, even so, I mean, it seems like there's different I think the the system is fractured a little bit now with without the the um, you know the pa crew the the father of the system still being there. I think there's different pockets of styles uh, and groups, yeah. and uh, yeah. and I'm not quite sure if what there's some differences. You know the way I've had a lot of conversations and, and Casey's given me some demonstrations, and it's like that's familiar to me with what was shown, but there's some subtle differences, and so it'd be. You know, he and I have talked about, well, geez, it would be great to hunt out these different little groups and just compare, you know, the different styles. Maybe there's some other bits of the the, the knowledge there that we could be gleaned from it. So I'm, I'm very excited at the possibility of, uh, you know, hooking him up with a, a different teacher out there, an additional teacher, I should say. So, yes. So let, 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 me, let me very briefly address that. So you got the possibility of the, the Chung Mu Kwan podcast the possibility of the Cobra Kai podcast from my extremely knowledgeable and nutty friend, who's a great guy. And uh, we could have a whole Kirby Kerbong podcast with uh, two friends of mine, uh, Justin Locke and Troy Neindorf. 
so to, to really complex, you know, situate, really compress for time. Okay. So there's a whole northern system, Lana, which is more, ooh, boy, at what point, at what point are people going to be hunting me down to kill me? More Chinese-influenced, more Kung Fu-influenced, and then your your Budai Swan from Pakru. Now, I'm 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 out of I'm out of Pakru. I'm out of that school. My rank certificate is from Pakru. Um, yeah, short answer. He had two families. As eh, Thai man. So he had the first family, and it had an elder son, and then he had a second family, and that had an elder son. So that's not all. I really don't want to speak for the ties, but they have their politics too. So there's the first family eldest son and the second family eldest son. Now I was with Pakru. I was with Pakru for a long time, but uh, at the end. I don't know, 10 years or something. And uh, the eldest son of the second family would be, would be my instructor. So I'm on, I'm on, uh, was it a vampire movie with the wolves and the vampires or something? Uh, Remember that? No, not, not Underworld, the other one, uh, the teenage one. It was like Team the Kid That's the Wolf or Team the Kids That's the Vampire. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Twilight uh, thing, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, my favorite movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've never seen it. But uh, I'm Team uh, I'm team Leah Root. I'm Team Second Family. And, you know, listen, you know, nothing against anybody else, but let me tell you, you watch We Are Root do a demonstration or teach something, Plenty of people are good, but that guy, that guy is just freaking amazing. Now, I am going to address, because there's a lot of Thai sword in the U.S., and uh, I'd recommend Justin Locke in the Bay Area and Troy Neindorf in Madison. Certainly, through you, they could get in touch with me and get in touch with them. So, as I would approach this, and this is my explanation, this is not a Thai government explanation. Now, you, you can make a strong argument that all martial arts at the top are the same, right? So if you start out in, just to piss off someone else on this podcast, if you start out in uh, Shudo, Catch, or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, at the end when you're at the peak, a lot of your stuff's going to look identical, right? So, well, I'm just going to shut up on that. Ah, um, eh, no, I'm not. So Kali is basically taught through patterns, six count, 12 count, Philippe and uh, 11 count, stuff like that, right? Like when you learned Kali, you started out doing a six count, heaven, earth, right? Sure, absolutely. Okay. So the, the pattern methodology, and that, that's fine. It's a wonderful teaching method. Filipino martial arts are fantastic. But that's how they approach it. So Thai sword absolutely has patterns, but I would say it's more of a body mechanics art. How you move, how you stand, how you position yourself, how you're getting force in the strike. So uh, Krabi Krabong, 
could be translated as long weapon, short weapon. They have a MISOC, they have a knife, they have all this stuff. So if you if you move a certain way, you're kind of doing tie sword. If you move a different way, you're not doing tie sword. So uh what's I don't know, what's the world's most basic four count? Uh cross hook, right kick, switch left kick, right? Ah, uh-huh, it's Muay Thai. Well, I could hold pads, I could hold tie pads, and you could throw that pattern doing karate. You know what I mean? Reverse punch, lun punch, right snap kick, left snap kick. So I would say with the tie arts, it's more how you move and how you generate power than the pattern. And you see a lot of tie sword groups out here that we like to refer to as Kali Kerbon. Because <laughs> you can see that just, you know, nothing against anyone. But you can see there's a, the, the people who did that did a lot of Kali. You know what I mean? Well, it's interesting you mentioned the, the power aspect of it. Because I remember that that was a big emphasis from uh, Chet Chai. You know, it reminded me very much of the kick. Like you didn't have to know a lot of kicks. You just had to work on the one kick and try and make it as, as devastating as pow- powerful. And so that, that initial cut to the neck, the claw cut, there was a lot of emphasis on the, how to hit that as powerfully as possible. Um, you know, de- dealing with Casey and talking with what he's getting. And um, it's interesting because a lot of it, so they've got the counts and the patterns that he has to learn. There's like initial sets where it's offense, defense, and, and certain patterns. But then there's a lot spent on the dance aspect of it. So each weapon has a dance or a dance form that he has to learn that translates moves yeah. into dance. Um, um, but the aspect of the generating power, I specifically asked him about that. I said, have you worked just on, you know, an individual cut, you know, or a strike with the spear, whatever it is, in trying to generate power? And that didn't seem like it seemed a little foreign to him when I said that. And that kind of raised an alarm for me a little bit. Um, but that's it. I mean, they say they're Bude Swan and a lot of the patterns that I'm seeing look very familiar to me, you know, and he's, in some ways he's taken it much, much further than I ever saw. Um, but having never seen his class, I'm, I'm going to address that. But I was in I was in the class you're talking about. I mean, I was straight up in that class. So that guy was that guy is a very good instructor and that guy was very good. But that guy, he was teaching from a very Thai perspective. Like in Thailand, you don't have to justify why you're doing Thai sword. Because it's like, it's, oh, it's part of the school system or it's a part of something else. So everybody's already doing it. You know, if I were to teach, uh, you know, like, like firearms, if I'm going to teach a Western quick draw class, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have to explain that, why we're doing that to people over here. It's in every Clint Eastwood movie. What are you talking about? You know what I mean? So if I were teaching that in another country, I'd have to explain what, you know, high noon was, what a showdown is, what a quick draw is, why the holster looks like that. They wouldn't have that background. So that teacher didn't really uh, make the jump to properly market it to Western people through no fault of his own. Uh, the school could have picked up a lot of slack on that. And secondly, you know, what's the environment? So people at that school were doing 12 different martial arts, and they were doing them 406 different ways. So he wanted a certain 
very clear elliptical strike. And it was hard to get people to do that because in the four classes they took before that with another art and somebody else, they were doing it a different way. So it's kind of making him crazy that people weren't doing what he's doing. Now, if you're in a Kirby Cabron class and everybody in it's doing Kirby Cabron, you don't have any of those problems. The guy in front goes, go like this. And everybody in class except the new guy goes like that. And the new guy, because he has no competing information, will pick it up very quickly. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you're saying kind of like in my background, I was probably programmed to do strike and different. He yeah, almost had unprogrammed me. To, I guess spend yeah. more time getting me to do the correct form. Where Casey, from day one, not being a you know a, really a, any kind of a weapons guy before, and everybody around him is not doing different styles. That yeah, he's just getting the, right away. They're jumping right into what he needs to. So he's not being there's not some kind of a thing to work against. I guess he's getting you know getting it directly right away. Sure. Cool. Yeah, well, either way, I still need to get him in touch with you because that, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I, I think he'd love to have a conversation with you. And I, yeah, I can't wait for him to check, listen to this podcast. I think he's going to be really excited about that. Um, well, people in America try to replicate it or, um, what's my word, synthesize it as much as they can. But, I, you know, every, everyone, everyone should go to Thailand and see the real deal. You know, I don't know. It's like drinking, I don't know scotch in scotland or something I, I have no idea but that's where you see like the certain approach and where it comes from certain gyms over here do an excellent perhaps even a better job of of getting the the gist of it the point of it the practicality of it to western students and you know those those gyms are those gyms are pretty priceless some other gyms, you know, eh, you know, today we're doing this, tomorrow we're doing this, the next day we're doing this. We're kicking from this country with our right leg, from that country with our left leg. And it's not really a, like an integrated style system or method. So obviously big fan of Muay Thai, big fan of Thai style training, big fan of certain things. And other stuff's great, but, you know, this is what I'm going to do. Kind of on a related question, I don't know, have you had a chance to train any um, Thai-adjacent martial arts, things like in Burma or some of those other styles that are, you know, they seem to be of a very similar, they descend from a very similar uh, ancestor, it seems like. Have any exposure to those arts? I have a lot of exposure, but I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm 100% Thai all the way in this matter. So, you know, I can appreciate that. Yeah, very much so. So, okay, so we're on, we're on Budai Swan. So you, you can back this up with your son. So every, you guys, you guys did bring me on a podcast to tell stories, right? So you can't get mad at me for telling stories. <laughs> so every demo, and again, I wish you guys, I wish we had a little like time machine. If, if you guys were sitting next to Troy and me, it would be your, your Muay Thai podcast. Cause you'd be sitting there going, this is the coolest stuff I ever saw in my life. I'm never doing anything else. All the Thai 
Well, it's tied to patriotism. It's tied to patriotism, and it's tied to the military. Just like like a rodeo. You ever been to a rodeo in the U.S.? A lot of American flags at a rodeo. You, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. At a monster truck pull. I'm not commenting on that. I'm not hijacking it, but certain things are tied to certain things. Traditionally, Thai sword has a great attachment to to patriotism because uh, the Burmese came in and basically destroyed the old capital of Ayutthaya and ended ended Thailand as a country, ended the Thai people as a people. And eh, that happened a lot in Asian history. So the original king, Thaksin, forgive me for mispronouncing his name. Now, there's there's a couple prime ministers with the same last name. Uh, I don't want to say no relation, but there's not eh, kind of no relation. And there's a few hundred years separating it. So somebody may be named Washington, but that doesn't mean they're a direct relationship to George Washington. So the original Thaksin, I like to think of him as the, the Thai Alexander the Great, picked up two swords and just went to town. And uh, like Prabhi Kerbong is it's like the art, in theory, he used. He drove the Burmese out of Thailand, established the first uh, uh, royal dynasty, uh, drove into Burma. And remember Alexander the Great, he made it all the way to India and he wanted to keep going to China. And then mysteriously his stomach tummy hurt and he died. Yeah. Uh, Taksin One wanted to keep going through Burma and invade China and mysteriously he died. Now, I'm not a scholar of Thai history, but to me that, that just sounds like Alexander the Great, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that uh, he died and then the, uh, the current dynasty took over so it's all it's all from that guy. So it's tied to the patriotism, you know, like the Alamo, Texas, and the Alamo. Texas is kind of based on the Alamo. Yeah. Everyone forgets Texas was its own country for many years. Everybody thinks Texas is a part of uh, the United States. Yeah, not always. They were their own country for quite a while. So in the history of Texas, which was its own country, the Alamo is a big deal. Uh, Ty Sword, Kirby Carbon. The origin of it is very important. So all the Thai Thai demos run something like this. Uh, Yamada, I'll give you a great movie to watch. Yamada, Samurai of Ayutthaya, which is a fantastic movie, and it has all these famous Thai boxers doing stuntman roles. They kind of represent the Thai view in that history well. It's on a historical interest. There actually was a Yamada. He was a samurai. He lived in Thailand, and... He got involved in Thai politics, and anyway, it gave us a great movie. So just like Yamada, the Thais are all having fun, being good family people, enjoying themselves. And then the Burmese sneak attack them. And then there's this big battle involving swords and staffs and just everything you can think of. And the Thais are almost destroyed. And then a few of them just rally and kill the Burmese. And like like a typical ending would be like the last standing Thai female takes a Thai flag mounted on a spear and skewers the last Burmese guy. So that'd be a very that'd be a very typical demo, right? So it's all based on uh, patriotism. So
So, you know, you, again, monkey see, monkey do. You hang around, you know, you hang around with all this stuff. You're a little reticent to start. Oh, so cool. Burmese martial arts. It is cool, but just emotionally, I'm kind of not with that. Now, I used, I used to go to Cambodia. I used to go to Cambodia to get the heck out of Thailand. I need a vacation for my vacation. So Bangkok is a very uh, mega city. It's like Blade Runner. It's not like a village or, oh, it's by the sea. It's like, imagine just like uh, the most New Yorky New York possible. It's, yeah, for a Westerner, it's, it's the scale of it is shocking. Yeah. I remember I took the L from somewhere in central Bangkok out to Casey by the suburb. And it was like, oh, we went by the downtown. Oh, wait, there's another downtown. And it just goes yeah. on and on and on. It's just, it's, you never seen urban environment that dense for that long. It's, 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 it's shocking. So for my little, to take a little break, and uh, there, there's other places you could go, but to be honest about it, eh, there's just too many foreign. There's just too many foreigners. I don't want to hang out with those guys. So I used to go to Siem Reap in Cambodia, which is like the temple area. So it's a very, you know, it's the countryside. It's beautiful. Anchor Wat's there. So I used to go there to just relax. Did you ever see Tomb Raider? Sure. Okay. That's the uh, West Gate at Anchor Wat, which is a city. So it's like it's like saying a certain movie was filmed at Superdog, and now you've seen Chicago. So I mean, Anchor Wat, Anchor uh, Anchor Tom, Anchor Soleil, all this stuff—it's just incredible. So I went to the very um, safe, uh, refined, like religious areas of Cambodia. I didn't go to the the, the problem gangster areas of Cambodia. But even so, I'd, I'd still work out. Like I'd run in the morning and I'd try to lift weights at night. And, you know, all, all the, there, was, there was no martial arts. All the Cambodian hoodlums lifted weights. So, you know, my driver would get all nervous, you know, because some of these players, these are rough guys. There's a pool hall right next, and eh, these guys are gangsters. But, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not there to be a gangster. I'm just there to lift weights. And then one year I went there and there were all these fights. And, uh, you know, how much of that is uh, economics and commercialism and how much of that is legit? Because the Thais are making a boatload of money on Muay Thai. So, you know, did this stuff exist before? If you can find somebody legitimate, I'm, I'm sure he's marvelous. But I, I, would, I would really investigate how legitimate some of this is. You know, remember Mao? Mao? First thing Mao did was kill all the Kung Fu guys. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you've ever, you ever see the Killing Fields? Boy, boy, film hour with Rick. You ever <laughs> see the movie, The Killing Fields? I know of it, yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty good film. You should see it. Those, okay. those guys were not good for the martial arts. Thailand actually had a, a, an economic system that created a lot of Muay Thai, a lot of Muay Thai, and a lot of good Muay Thai. So I've seen it. I'm somewhat aware of it. Um, 
some of that stuff looks okay, but generally not my passion. Fair enough. Actually, I'm glad you brought up Cambodia, and because whenever, because I, you know, people who are interested in Muay Thai or Thai in general, um, even if they're just traveling, completely unrelated to martial arts, you know, I say if you're going to Thailand, you know, spend a day, take the two-hour plane ride or whatever, and go to Siem Reap, see Angkor Wat. You know that yeah. that is it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I mean, it's it's staggering uh, to see that that m- amount of architecture. Uh, yeah, the, at that level, just in the middle of the jungle, just, you know, in the middle of nowhere, just, just as stunning. It's like ancient Rome, but, uh, in, you know, in my view, it's just probably more beautiful, just lush, but it's, it's if you're going to fly the 13 hours to the other part of the world, uh, you know, take a break from training like you did and see that you, you'll, you won't regret it. It's, it's definitely worth a day or two to, to uh, just to see that it's, 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 it's unbelievable. And they let you just walk right in and, and climb on, I mean, not necessarily climb, yeah. You can walk right into this giant temple, and you know it, it's 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 amazing. There's this mountain. It's a small mountain. I can't. You gotta forget Mount Dawn or something. Sorry, I didn't prepare for this. But um, I had a good relationship with my guide because you need a guide. You need a guy on a motorcycle to drag you all around because um, it's so big. So if you can get your guide to show up at four thirty in the morning. He drags, you know, he rides you out to this Mount Dawn and then immediately goes to sleep. And in the darkness, you know, how am I alive? <laughs> you know, how, what, why am I alive? I'm mentally retarded. I should not be here. So in the darkness, you climb this Cambodian mountaintop with uh, no safety or improvement whatsoever. And you get to the top of it and you can watch the sun rise over, you know, uh, Anchor Watt. And, you know, uh, oh, dude. Oh, dude. So I saw it at ground level, the sunrise, you know, with the rest of the tourists, but I can't imagine being up on a mountain because being able to, a bird's eye view of that, because it is, it's not just one complex. It's an entire ancient yeah. city. To see the sunrise with the jungle and everything. Wow. I wish I had known that. Now I'll have to go back. <laughs> With, with the red and all that, you might want to start training for that climb. <laughs> you know, and this, this is when I was young, fair, well, younger, fairly young, and living in a Thai camp. You know, climbing a Cambodian mountain in the dark at like 4.45 in the morning, you, your, your, heart, your heart's, it's one of those things, your heart's really got to be in it. You know what I mean? <laughs> for sure. Yeah, they don't have a lot of guideposts and safety rails like you're saying. Um, well, that, that, that's the one thing that really struck me, at least back then. Wood is free. You got nothing but the best wood in the planet. And labor's free. And, like, dude, there's not a set of stairs, a pathway, a guardrail, you know, to be found anywhere, at least then. You know, it's not it's not the American Disneyland experience, you know. Yeah, I mean, but in some ways, that kind of the rough edges of it, like it, it was almost be a shame. I mean, maybe on the mountain, you need a little bit of something, but the fact that it's not completely polished, I mean, going back to kind of the camp experience, you know, you kind of miss something when, you, when it's completely westernized and cleaned up, you know, I mean, you, you don't, you miss part of that, uh, hey, I'm actually in another part of the world experience. Um, well, it gets so hot. So, I mean, obviously, 
you know, youth is relative, but I was much younger then than I am now. I was also quite dramatically thinner. Um, my back was good. And, you know, I mean, I, I was in good shape. I was living outside. You know, camp does not have air conditioning. So I remember I'd be with my guide, and, you know, it starts getting hot around noon. So all the tour groups in the morning, some of these uh, sites, they'd be pretty packed. And then, you know, the sun comes up in, in noon, and it starts getting hot, and everybody's gone. And I can't blame them because you know. It's very, you know, hot and humid over there is a whole different hot and humid. And a lot of this stuff is kind of like the only guy there. I'm just running around by myself, you know. How cool is that? Yeah, no, that is amazing. It is another world. And, yeah, this, as far as the heat, I remember one time, because we were there during uh, the New Year's April. And uh, so that's when they had the, the big water fest because it's so hot. But I remember it had cooled down in the evening. You know, we had, the sun had finally gone down and we're like, oh, hey, not too bad. What temperature is? Oh, it's 90 degrees out. That it had cooled off to 90. <laughs> yeah. It, um, we were in those temples. We were hiking around. And uh, I'm usually pretty okay in the sun. And I don't worry too much about sunscreen. But like the panic alarm went off to me. We had wandered off from our, our guide. And I had been out there for a good, you know, not, it felt 90 minutes. I'm like, oh, shit. I didn't plan for the, like, I need to get some yeah. over, like, this is for real. Like I'm out and exposed and this is, this is the stuff that like takes people out. You know, I realized I had, you know, overshot, over uh, underestimated what I was up against. So it's, it's respectable. You gotta, you know, um, yeah, it was uh, climbing on some of those temples. You're completely, you know, just baking in that sun, but again, still a hundred percent worth it, but just, you got to respect what the environment you're in, no doubt. And you got to be a little careful because you you fall off that thing, you're going to be there for a while, you know. You know your fir your first aid might be some animal eating you, you know. So <laughs> you really, really got to think. That's another thing. Like I remember learning the hard way, you know, because over here, oh, uh, objective metric, and it's oh, it's seventy degrees. Seventy degrees is very very nice if you live in Illinois. You know, I remember some nights in the camp or Budai Swan, dude, it was freezing. I had to put on sweats, you know, because, you know, the temperature dropped 30 degrees. Yeah. You know, listen, if it's 100 during the day <clears throat> and it drops 30 degrees, it's freaking cold, you know. Yeah, your body got acclimated to that 100 degrees. You're used to it now. 70s, yeah. yeah. 70s, where's my jacket? Where's my jacket? <laughs> Just like people from California. Well, that and uh, the original, the original Budai Swan, the, the bathroom facilities. Camps today are much better. Bathroom facilities back in the day. I'm not saying, you know, like, like this is kind of a theme. I'm not saying training back then was better. I'm not saying it's worse, but it was different. But I mean, you, you know, you can, you can back me up on this. People were really kind of different. You had to be sort of a, a rougher, in my case, perhaps poor judgment kind of person. 
Because some of these places, you know, your bathroom facility, it's a hole. You got a hole. And uh, you got a 55-gallon drum filled with water with a saucer floating in it. That's, uh, you know, number one, number two. You know, that's where you take a shower. That's where you do all that stuff. And, uh, you know, I've had long hair my whole adult life. You got to be really committed to wash your hair with like a teacup floating in a 55-gallon drum, you know? Jeez. That's crazy. Got to want it, baby. You got to want it. <laughs> a lot of self-talk, a lot of positive self-talk, you know? Yeah. You can do it. Well, if I, you know, if, if, if I had a dollar every time I said that to myself in Thailand, I, w- I would be I would be sitting here talking to you from a, a very nice Lamborghini. That's all I'm going to say. Possibly a Bugatti. That's all I'm going to say. Ooh. Both are great cars. I'll take either one of them. Shit. At a dollar, uh, you can do this. You can do this. You can make it. It'll get better. You're here for a reason. <laughs> you know, got it. Like any anything, anything good. You know, you got to hang in there. You got to get your mind you know, on point and not be, not be, uh, dissuaded or discouraged. Sometimes that's bad judgment, you know? Yeah. But sometimes, yeah, but you're right. You have to have that. I don't know that blind, um, desire, that burning desire, that blind faith in this is what I want to do, but you're right. Sometimes people do have that and it turns out they should have used better judgment. Yeah. I agree. What the heck am I doing at 4.45 in the morning climbing this mountaintop in Cambodia in the dark? They got snakes. You know that? They got snakes. They got real snakes. They're big. They're poisonous. You know? I grew up in the suburbs. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I don't know anything about a snake. You know? Not those kind of snakes. Well, fair enough. But, you know, you're on the mountaintop and you're watching this big, like, red orange globe climb out of the jungle over Angkor Wat and it's really cool. Some some times, some trips I'd be up there by myself. Remember one trip of a guy from the People's Republic of China, which that was back then. You could go your whole life without seeing somebody from the People's Republic of China then. And you know, you you don't want to ask a lot of questions. But like that guy's English was pretty good. So, you know, that guy, that guy must have been something. Yeah. You know, businessman or political guy or something. And uh, I remember because he was like way taller than me. So, you know, the uh, northern country of China, they could be quite tall. And, uh, you know, here I am, here, me and some guy from the PRC watching the sun come up over Anchor Wat, just, you know, talking about everything in the world. You know, it's crazy where a path takes us, man. How cool is that? For real, that's that's a great story. What a great memory. So you know why why did you do Muay Thai? You know you know. <laughs> so I come up to you know Lumpini Stadium. There's like a million people there. Everybody seems to know everybody. All the signs are in Thai. You know you know. And uh, I see one Farang, who's like ended up being from Norway or something. 
And, uh, you know, we kind of walk over to each other. Thank God he spoke uh, English because my Norwegian's non-existent. And uh, it's like, you want to hang out? And I'm like, yeah. Glad he, glad he, that's, that's when you saw the gambling and you see all this other stuff. And, dude, like the greatest, you know, go to Muay Thai Scholar. All these, you know, the 90s was the golden era of Muay Thai. You saw these these fights that are like, if this was on TV, this would be Hagler Hearns. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now they kind of are, but at the time we were seeing that stuff live. That's awesome. Well, we've been going here for about two hours, and it's been it's just been flying by with these great stories. But um, we probably should wrap things up a little bit here and get back to our Easter's. But I want to thank you for coming on. These are great stories and it's super cool to hear someone who's really, uh, really uh, kind of connected with what, what their mission was in life and just had some, so many great experiences with it. Um, just, yeah, I just love hearing all that stuff. And um, obviously, you know, people in the Chicagoland area, you want to, you want to plug your school some, how to get a hold of you. I absolutely want to plug my school. So my school is a Kai training hall, A-I-K-I. And, and why doesn't my school have a Thai name? Because when I opened it in the 80s, nobody would have known what that was. So uh, a Kai is a uh, term from Japanese sword. Japanese sword, I would argue, is very close to Thai sword. I hold a very high rank in Thai sword. So I stole their term. Sue me. Um, Akai Training Hall, 6611 North Clark. You can contact us on the website. And uh, who else did I mention? Uh, Brian Popejoy uh, in California, uh, Bob Carmel in Arizona, Troy Neindorf in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, Bruce Panapol in uh, Tennessee, uh, Dean Lisi, Pete Peterson in Iowa. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot. Uh, Eric Craft in Louisville. There's a lot of top flight people you can train with. Uh, Caitlin Rose Young, uh, the Academy, the seller up in Minneapolis. There's a lot of really top schools. I prefer mine, 6611 North Clark, <laughs> a guy training hall, Chicago, Illinois. And if anyone wants to go to Thailand, I don't get paid for this. You know, I don't have the Rick's uh, tour of Thailand and, you know, I'm going to buy a new car at the end of it. But I know, I know a lot of people. I know some people. So if, if you want to learn, you know, Muay Thai, we can help you find uh, an appropriate and a rewarding trip for you. And, uh, you know, if you want to learn the Thai sword, the Kirby Kerbong, there's many good people. But my, I, I, would say, I would say my instructor is a heart-stopping value at this moment in history. So Akai Training Hall, go to the website, shoot us a message. And... Uh, Hopefully I've picked up some Muay Thai knowledge and not just a bunch of stories over the years. And please make sure you put his uh, information on the uh, YouTube channel thing there, uh, Joe, you know, his website, his name and everything else that you can. And this is great for me to finally meet you, even if it, like I said, even if it was virtual. So now things are getting a little better. Maybe we can just meet up in person. The three of us just hang out, you know, uh, and, and shoot the ball, man. That'd be great. Yeah, get some Thai food. Yeah, I would enjoy that. And we could yeah. have a Thai sword podcast. And uh, my very knowledgeable kung fu friend, you could have a whole 
Kung Fu podcast on him. And uh, I know I know a lot of C-Lot guys talk about Muay Thai adjacent that are uh, not what you think. You, you would enjoy them. Hmm. Uh, my my C-Lot friend, so if any of you guys know who Nate Defensor is, he used mm-hmm. to have these big events where all these instructors would come in and teach. And uh, Joe Judd's a good friend of mine. Now I never met him there, but he did something. I'm like, that looks exactly what like Larry Hartsley used to teach us. So to drag it all back to Larry, I think Larry's martial art had a lot of C-Lot in it from Derek Danny that was kind of uncredited. You know what I mean? So there's all kinds of there's all kinds of good people you talk to. There's all kinds of good training available, some of which is available at my school, Akai Training Hall, sixty six eleven North Clark. <laughs> well, this awesome. is a lot of fun, man. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I, I, I look forward to getting you two guys in a room with some food and a couple of beers. I think that would be a really fun time. And I'm going to take you up on that. Uh, Krabby Cabron podcast. We'll circle back maybe in a couple months and maybe even we'll, we'll schedule a time when Casey can um, join in from Thailand and ask more intelligent questions directly to them so we can get a little bit more technical on it. I think that would be pretty cool too. Um, but yeah, I think this is great. Um, I don't know any other closing thoughts. Happy Easter, obviously, to everybody. Yes, happy Easter, everybody. And we will see you here next week. No special guests next week, just... Hopefully we'll have Nico back and uh, get things back on track. For sure. Yeah. He's going to regret missing this conversation, but you'll have to listen in like the rest. (laughs) All right, guys. Hello, Nico and family. We miss you. All right, guys. Talk to you. Thanks guys. Thanks again, Rick. Thank you. Thank you.